Good morning. I'm Myrtle Mohart, and today we'll be reading two scriptures from Matthew 13, 1 to 9, and 18 to 23, which can be found on page 818 of the Pew Bible. Matthew 13, 1 to 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered with him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had not, no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Continuing with verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself and endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Myrtle. Thanks, Rob. Hey, that was for a glass half-empty guy. That was good. Thank you. Um, let me pray for us again. Jesus, thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for the way it takes effect in our hearts. Uh, would you make our hearts soft and receptive and open? Um, we need to hear from you. We want to be changed by you. And where we don't want to be changed by you, where our hearts are hard, where we're callous, where we feel shallow, where we've allowed things to come and choke out your word or your kingdom, would you grant repentance? Would you soften us? Would you awaken us? The light of Christ, would you shine upon us the way Ephesians talks about and wake us up to the realities of who you are? Because that will be best for our souls and because you love us. So help I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm eager to jump into this passage, but before we do, just quick housekeeping stuff. Tonight's members meeting, we're voting on our budget, um, which is... Uh, out on the table in the back, there's a little cover letter that gives you some sort of context. Everyone is welcome to come to our members' meetings. They're family meetings, but 
like a good family, we say, come on, there's room at the table. We'd love for you to be a part of that. You can ask questions. You can participate. When it comes time to vote, just our members will vote. But um, man, there are fun times for us to talk about where we're going, where we are. Uh, So we'll do budget. We'll talk about uh, our deacons and affirm some new deacons. We'll talk about some things that are coming up with ministries in the fall and the summer. I think it'll be informative to you. It should be encouraging to you. Uh, We'll get some time to pray together at the end, and then we'll jump into that potluck, which again is for everybody as well. And so not just like a metaphorical meal, but like a real meal. We'll have a family meal and just hang out for a while. So I want you to come to that. There's a a list, I think, in your bulletin of like what alphabet letter goes to what kind of dish, just so we have enough, and it's not all just Doritos. Uh, We have some other things as well. So you can check that out. But man, please come and hang with us. If you can't come to the members meeting, please come to that, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. We do these once a quarter, and they are important parts of just our community, kind of hearing from each other, giving you a chance to ask some questions. Um, so I encourage you to come 4 o'clock and then 5 o'clock for the meal. It should just be an hour long, I believe. Okay, and with that, there is child care, and let's use that loosely. There will be someone in a room with a TV on watching a movie. Uh, so if your kids can handle that, let's do that. Uh, if you need like lots of diaper changes and feedings, it's not that kind of child care. This is lowercase c child care. Uh, but it will be down the hall in what was the red room, which we are still going to call the red room, though now it has new carpet, which is gray. So we'll point you that direction. Uh, so that is like, I don't know, what is that, two years old or one, one and some change years old? I don't know, whatever. But that, that's what will be down the hall. So you can come. A little guys, they love the meeting. Uh, it's like at their tone where they just fall asleep. It's a fantastic for little ones and then more active ones can do that. Okay. I think that's it. All right. Hey, so we're in this section on the parables in the book of Matthew. And if it's your first time with us, maybe a little bit of context is helpful by way of hospitality. Jesus has done a lot of miracles. He's been saying he's the son of God. He's been showing he's the son of God. And you would think people would be welcoming that. They would be excited about that. He's been healing and giving grace and offering forgiveness of sins, all the things that we want. And yet we experience in this book real resistance. There is a religious crowd. There are people who are set in their ways. There are folks who expected God to do something different than what he is doing. And they are standing actually violently against Jesus. So we've just come through two chapters of like teaching where he's interacting with people. He's challenging them. He's explaining clearly who he is. And now we come into these parables. And Jesus is going to start still teaching who he is, but in ways that are a little bit more provocative. So last week we took some time on verses 10 to 17 talking about the purpose of parables and why God says hard things. And one of the things we talked about was that Jesus uses these kind of provocative images to kind of deepen our understanding of what the kingdom really is about. He's explaining the nature of the kingdom in ways that just data wouldn't do. So he tells stories that are vivid, that we feel. They often have a punchline in ways that we get on the hook and have to deal with him differently than if he just walked through theology or through some data. So they they explain the nature of the kingdom, but they also expose the nature of our hearts. So it actually is like coming with a sword. It comes and brings division. You'll see different responses to his parables throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. And so they're not just simple illustrations that make everything spiritual easy to understand. They're more layered than that. They have a lot of depth to them. And sometimes there's things that are super easy to understand on the surface, and yet the meaning gets pressed into our hearts in really not just intricate, like 
like, a, like China cup kind of small detail sort of intricate ways, but in ways that press into every part of our life. And the details of our lives, like touching everything about us, our affections, our fears, our longings, our loves, he wants to speak into all those things. And so he uses these stories to do that. And there's seven in this chapter, and they provide kind of the initial composite sketch of who he is, who we are, what we need, what he's actually offering. And it takes all these stories, and there's many more in the book of Matthew, to kind of fully explain a God that you can't quite wrap your mind around. Even at the end of the book of Matthew, there'll still be questions for people who have heard him teach and watched what he's done and heard the parables and seen the miracles, and they're still wondering, who is he exactly? What, what is involved in following after him? So it's okay if you have questions. You'll actually see his disciples asking lots of questions. So when I say composite sketch, I don't mean pure detail where it removes all mystery and everything's just really plain. I mean he's showing and demonstrating kind of the texture of the kingdom so we have something to respond to. There's a challenge in this. He'll, he'll actually change our expectations a little bit. So if, if last week was explaining and exposing, I want to kind of give another E word of, of our expectations. He's changing what we expect it means to follow him. But like for the very least, like he, he mentioned Satan multiple times here. He's bringing in the supernatural world into our understanding of what it means to follow him. Right? It's not just earthy. There's something more than that. There's something supernatural that we have to account for, deal with. We should be both afraid of in a right way that says, I don't want to mess with this. I don't want to be casual about this. And I actually should submit to God and resist that. But if I don't imagine or acknowledge or think about a supernatural world, I might think I've got tons of time. I might think I just relate to God on my own terms whenever I want. He'll talk about illustrations of deep treasure, He'll talk about the value of the kingdom. There's some parables about judgment, about, about him dividing people into two camps and one that he welcomes into his eternal family and one that he sends into eternal punishment to remind us this is not a game. We're not dealing with just academic ideas or philosophies or, or kind of worldviews that you could take or leave. There are eternal consequences in the way that Jesus lays out these parables. So, so they are provocative. They're instructive. They're, they're meant to call to us to respond. And all of them have embedded in them a need for us to respond. They're not just things that we learn and kind of think about. They're meant to invite uh, a response, an invitation. They're meant to provoke some sort of reaction to us. So, so that's kind of why they exist. They, again, they're talking about the kingdom in ways that, that are more than just we would understand academically. He's meaning to aim into our hearts. And normally you would say about these parables, there is kind of one main idea. And Jesus actually models for us how to understand these parables. He explains the first two for us to get us started. He kind of gives us a template of how do you understand the imagery there? Is there kind of one main idea or certain things represent some stuff? And the answer to that is both. There, there's both things happening. There's a central idea that he's showing through these different metaphors or images. So as we encounter that, we think about one main idea with lots of application. I would imagine if you've grown up in church or ever went to VBS as a kid, you heard this parable somewhere. It's even like in popular literature and popular movies, you'll find these ideas and concepts kind of throughout our culture. And maybe you've heard it applied lots of different ways. And what's beautiful about it is you have this core central idea that Jesus clearly explains. I love that he explains it. So I don't have to do that work. We'll just take his explanation. And we can spend our time on application. And the context matters a ton because if I was talking, let's say, to pastors, 
I would have a, a different kind of focus of the patience of the one who is sowing seed. And not to lose heart or be discouraged if it takes a while for people to respond. And recognizing different kinds of people in your church. If we're doing a parenting class, I might apply it a little differently to think about the hearts of your children and removing barriers to their belief and you kind of settling into trusting the power of God's word is actually enough to, to shape their souls. If we were doing like a night of evangelism, we're going to go out to share the good news. We might use this parable to, to give us courage to say, hey, don't lose hope. If, if you're with somebody and they shut the door in your face or they totally reject you, then don't, don't worry about that. Just keep moving. The seed that God wants to sow should go everywhere. Be courageous. Be generous. Maybe if we were talking to somebody at a coffee shop about accepting Jesus, we could use the parable to say, hey, what soil best describes your heart? Do you feel like it's hard? Do you feel like it's shallow? You're not sure what to actually believe and how to apply it. Does it feel tangled up or or are you ready to actually receive right? We could use the parable lots of ways, even though there's kind of this central explanation that Jesus gives us. So that means throughout the week, I've had like nine different outlines thinking through how do we apply that to us? What do we need? I had seven M's at one point. I had like 13 E's at one point. I had lots of things going, man, there's lots of ways we could press this in in our community. And I simply stand uh, before you going, I think over time, God wants to say a lot of things to us. This morning, I'm pretty convinced there's a couple of encouragements he wants to give us. So we're all going to use E's because it just seemed to make most sense this morning as I was trying to wrap this thing up. So we'll use Jesus's explanation and then we'll talk about Jesus's example for us. We'll look at what Jesus exposes in us, and then we'll talk about his encouragement to us. So not tongue-in-cheek, Jesus actually gives us a clear explanation. His disciples ask, what's the meaning of this? And so in verse 18, we see him explain it. So let's just start there. Look at Jesus' explanation of this kingdom parable. Design help us know what God is like, what we need what we should respond to, how the world works. Here's what he says in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, right? So these seeds are about the kingdom of God, the word of the kingdom, right? It's the gospel that's going out. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The first thing Jesus says is there's kinds of people, and, and there's lots of kinds of people. He uses four categories here. I actually made some uh, phone calls this week to some of our members. I love that we have like legitimate farmers in our body. We have like social media influencers, and we have farmers. We have stay-at-home dads, and we have engineers. We have artists, and we have school teachers. Like We're all over the map, right? So, so I actually talked to some real farmers, and it was amazing to me to hear how many different classes they had taken about soils, like as if there was like more than one class. They'd taken multiple classes on soils. And one guy just said, hey, there are hundreds of kinds of soils. And I was like, I, okay, maybe I'd be like seven if I was on Jeopardy and guessing, I don't know. But to hear there's hundreds of different kinds, and there's probably lots of mixtures, and maybe you feel like that. I just stop here for a second. He's going to give four kinds of people, and maybe you feel like a mixture of several of these. But he's going to give four kind of classic descriptions. And the first one is one who hears the gospel and doesn't receive it. Jesus says this path is kind of hard and it doesn't understand is the word he says. He's actually going to use understanding to book in things. Verse 19, he talks about not understanding. And then in verse 23, he talks about understanding. So this idea of receptivity in the heart 
soil that accepts the seed is one that actually understands the good news of the gospel. So the first one doesn't understand it. And so you stop for a second and go, wait, that's not maybe their fault. Maybe the gospel is confusing. And there seems to be like a moral nature to this. Because because when you don't understand something and you want to understand it, you can ask questions. Like the disciples don't understand what's going on. And so they ask Jesus, hey, would you explain this to us? So there's a kind of moralness to their resistance to it. It's not just that it's over their head. There's a hardness to their heart. And the warning there is that as the seed comes and their hearts are hard, it doesn't just sit there and wait for later. They can respond to it whenever they want at their own leisure. Jesus cautions there's a real enemy that comes like a bird and it snatches away the seed so it doesn't have time to take root. That's one person who doesn't want to understand, who it seems either difficult or too complicated or they don't have time for it, whatever it might be. But they, they choose not to understand. The seed hits their heart. It sits on the surface And then the evil one, he says, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's the one on the first path, he says in verse 19. And then he says the second person, this person who is described as as kind of shallow soil or rocky ground. In verse 20, he says, that's what was sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They hear the good news of the gospel and say, yes. Who wouldn't want to go to heaven when they die? Who wouldn't want to walk on streets of gold? Who wouldn't want to have all their sins forgiven? Who wouldn't want to have a purpose bigger than themselves to live for? They hear the good news of the gospel and they receive it with joy. But then he says they have no root in their hearts. It doesn't go down deep into their heart. It stays on the surface like like the promises of the kingdom in a shallow way never penetrate in the roots of their heart. Remember, he's been talking about fruit trees and roots and that fruits come out of the roots and we can describe and know a tree by its fruit for him to say there's no root there is to talk about the heart this is a description of of four kinds of hearts he says it has no root in himself but endures for a little while he responds for a little while and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the of the word when the gospel actually costs them something immediately he falls away he describes it as sun that comes in the heat And when the heat hits those plants with little shallow roots, they wither up, is the way he describes. Which is fascinating because heat is everywhere. The Bible describes things that grow up next to each other. The same heat hits one that has deep roots and fertile soil and it produces beautiful fruit. Same heat hits another that doesn't have deep roots, that doesn't have faith and belief. And it actually produces thorns and thistles we see. So, so the second one is kind of a shallowness. There's a, a receptivity to some of the promises or the, the blessings or the benefits of what it would mean to follow after God. But when things get hard and that costs them something, they don't have the depth of understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and they fall away. Describing some of his very followers, some of Jesus' own disciples would be in that category. In verse 22, he says, and for those Uh, What was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, so actually receives it, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, the goal is to bear much fruit, he's going to say, is what happens to the fertile soil. So this is the seed. It receives it. It understands it. It actually takes root in his heart, but then there are things in the world around them. He describes them as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that begin to wrap around and choke out their confidence, their assurance, their desire, their, their nourishing things about the gospel in their heart that would begin to grow them. So it's a warning about being entangled in the world. 
Jesus is just really clear. There are people who hear it and they, they believe, they want to believe, and yet they also believe other things. They have competing loves in their hearts, other idols that actually take away the nutrient value, choke it out in such a way that it can't be fruitful. In the fourth kind, he says in verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and he understands it, right? The first path doesn't understand it. The second one understands it, which is about belief. It's about receiving Jesus talked a lot about not just hearing with your ears, but actually believing inside your heart and not just saying that you call Jesus Lord, but actually living in such a way. So it's seeing and hearing. It's doing. Jesus is saying this kind of understanding is a faith that's real inside their hearts. The one who hears the word and understands it, he indeed bears fruit. The way you know you believe is by bearing fruit. And it yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, in another case 30, which would both be really encouraging. Those are mind-blowing stats of yield. There's also a variety there. It's different for different people and for different reasons, and God's the one who is in charge of that. So you see a various uh, degree of response of fruitfulness, though they have saving faith. So these four kinds of people, and again, he's been talking about the kingdom. It's being, being rejected. Some are receiving it shallow. Some are saying yes to it, but they're not letting go of the cares of this world. And then some are actually believing and putting their whole heart there. So that's what Jesus explains the parable to be for us. Now I want to talk about his example for us, what it exposes in us and his encouragement to us. Let me move quickly. Simply this, his example to us is this extravagant sower of these seeds. I don't know anything about modern farming, let alone first century farming. But I've imagined in my mind, maybe it's like a a home field or a home garden and there's path from your neighbor's house here and there. It's not probably in tight little rows that have irrigation the same way we have. It would kind of feel like a little bit of a mess, maybe a little more chaotic. And in that space, the sower steps right into that and he's sowing seed. I just mean that because it's not very strategic to like sow all your seed along the path where you know it's not going to grow. So maybe it's all mixed together in some ways. And what you see here is the extravagant, gracious offer of the gospel from Jesus to our world. Throwing the seed in places that are the most unlikely of places. Hey, there's some thorn bushes over there. I'm going to sow the gospel there. I know this soil is rocky. I'm going to sow the gospel there. Here's a path going to my neighbor's field. I'm going to sow the gospel there. Hey, there's some soil here I know is rich in nutrients. I'm going to sow some gospel there. It's a picture of not carelessness, but extravagance. Jesus is giving us an example of our own proclamation of the gospel. To be his followers and to step into his kingdom is to think about kingdom gospel spreading or kingdom proclamation, not so discriminant where you're strategizing every little nuance to it. You're just simply sharing the good news wherever you go. Coffee shops, children, neighbors, resistant parents, coworkers, people that you think have a very different worldview and probably would mock you. In those places, what Jesus is modeling for us as an example Knowing all the hearts of men, he actually is sowing the seed broadly. It's a picture of grace. It's an extravagant kind of grace. It's one that actually says, be generous with your time and your energy and your efforts. Sow the good news of the gospel wherever you go. There's just a simple encouragement in his example that I want to apply to us. I don't know how you're doing coming out of COVID and kind of reconnecting with friendships and the world around us has gotten increasingly hostile in the last couple of years. 
Everything just feels heightened and elevated. And so maybe you've felt like you have to be a little more reserved or a little quieter, pull back a little bit. And would you see in Jesus' example here, like a broad, gracious, not calculating it ahead of time, trusting that God could take a root wherever he wants to and throw that seed out. There's an example of grace and mercy in the way Jesus says the gospel is sown in the kingdom. Okay, what he exposes in us. These different soil types have challenges. There's things about them that keep the seed from setting. And I think the way he talks about this in these soils give us kind of a snapshot of things that we should be aware of. They serve as warnings for us. They serve as ways for us to actually just kind of assess our hearts and say, hey, where are those things true inside of me? Where might they cause trouble down the road? That they serve as invitations to repentance in those spaces. But he's going to name five things that keep this seed from taking root. In those three soils, there's five things. So I know there's four soils and then three bad ones and five good ones. And it was a long week. I know there's lots of like, this is better than the nine M's, I promise. So there's five things in this. The first one in this path that's not believing or understanding, you see an exposure of this evil one who responds to the hardness of our heart and snatches away the good news of the gospel. So there's a couple of things here. There's a hardness of not understanding. There's a lack of desire to understand. A barrier to receive the gospel is saying, I don't need it. It's not worth me exploring. It's not worth the time it would take to actually wrap my mind around, is there more than the material world? Is there something about me that feels bigger than just what I can see and touch? To be numb to that, to discard that, would be this hard path that doesn't seek understanding. But there's a moral nature to that and a supernatural nature to that, to hear that there's a very real enemy that comes to snatch away this seed. What keeps this seed from taking root from Jesus' explanation is the evil one that comes and snatches it away. It's not necessarily just the hardness or the lack of understanding, but that they don't seek to understand and let it just sit there on the surface. The evil one comes and exploits that and pulls that away. So there's a couple of things in there, and they kind of make us nervous, to be quite honest, as modern people, to hear that there is an evil one. That you have a real supernatural enemy who is trying, the scriptures say, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, who, who loves like a bird to come and snatch away the gospel truth before you have a chance to actually let it sit inside your heart. So the scriptures would call us to resist the evil one and to submit yourself to God. That's what it says to do, not to live in fear and not to minimize it, right? Not to give a caricature that makes you not concerned and not to live terrified. The scriptures say when you think about the evil one, you should resist him. And you should submit your heart to God. To do that would actually soften that path. It would be a way of like opening up your understanding. But we tend to do is resist God and submit ourselves to every desire that we have. Believing maybe every desire we have, they're just simply neutral. It's just part of how I'm wired. It's part of our culture. Not realizing we have a supernatural enemy that for millennium has been deceiving and telling half-truths and haunting God's people. Wants to keep people in prison and darkness and keep them separated from God. He declared war on the kingdom of God right after creation happened. And in the middle of that, to live lives that are oblivious to that would both harden your heart. It would make you think you've got plenty of time. There's no worry. And those seeds would sit across the top. So Jesus exposes 
This idea of understanding is not just like morally neutral. There's something going on there. And he warns us that you have an evil one who is whispering, influencing, speaking, alluring, tempting, lying, that is saying to you, you don't have to fill in the blank. Like they said at the tree in the garden, you don't have to listen to God. You can go after whatever you want. You can know more and do more than God has allowed for you, right? There's a real evil one that Jesus exposes And he ties that to our hardness of heart, which he calls a lack of understanding. So be warned. Be aware. Uh, It would say to us, like, don't just sit there idly by. Don't just sit in this room week after week after week, believing you can come to God on your own terms whenever you want. There's a kind of moralness to this lack of understanding. And there's a supernatural enemy that does not want you to understand. So as you walk out, he wants to snatch away the word. Even in the moment, he wants to snatch away the word. That's one thing he exposes is the evil one. Then he moves into this shallow soil and he exposes two other things. And maybe we could call them expectations. He calls them tribulations and then persecution. He says, this person receives the word, but but doesn't have very deep roots. And so when the heat comes and the sun starts shining, it says in verse 21, through tribulation or persecution, when that arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. There's an exposure that we have shallow understanding of the good news of the gospel, believing that it is just like a thing that we add on to what we're already doing and believing as if God was simply just a mascot or a cheerleader to our own goals and desires, as if he was just coming alongside of us to to kind of help and encourage us and cheer us on our own self-fulfillment. If that's the Jesus that you received when you were a child or even as an adult, if it was like this get out of hell free card that you thought, why would I not? Why not pray a prayer, have all my sins forgiven and go to heaven when I die? That's foolish to not do that. If that's the way you thought about that and it stayed there, Jesus is warning you there's a shallowness to that, that when the heat comes and tribulation happens, which are just general sufferings, things that make you suspicious about God's goodness, things that actually hurt and cause pain in ways that actually make you wonder if God is good. If all you wanted was to get out of hell free and he's supposed to make your life better and you're following him and your life is not better, that shallowness just makes a lot of sense that you would be tempted to turn away because Jesus didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. There's a warning here not to have a shallow understanding of what the king came to do. Friends, the Bible doesn't describe our hearts as almost there, just needing a little nudge, describes it as dead in our trespasses, like stone cold dead and and rebellious, like actively resisting God. And you can be kind and you can smile and you can be sweet. You can grow up around religious things. The Bible describes our hearts as hard and resistant. We didn't need God to come and just kind of cheer us on, give us a couple of tips. We need him to come and change us from the inside out. But if you think all he came to do was to make your life easier and better, to give you purpose and focus, and then things get hard, you'll be tempted to fall away. You could just examine your life. Where has that happened? Where has the heat of the world caused you to struggle to believe that God is good? So there's a general suffering with tribulations. And then he says there's a kind of suffering, number three, which is persecution that comes simply because you name the name of Jesus. This is suffering that's avoidable. If you would just renounce Jesus, if you just step away from the gospel, if you just say, I'm not actually following that one who claimed to be the Messiah, I don't think there is a Messiah. I think we're all Messiahs. I think the world gives us whatever we want. We should all just leave each other alone and do whatever you'd like to do, and everyone can have their own definitions of what makes them happy and what truth is truth. If you just do that, you don't face this kind of persecution. This kind of persecution only comes because God has actually gripped your heart 
You're trying to follow him. And the same world that hated Jesus begins to turn on you. It's shallow soil. I think you could put the word expectations on there. We fall away because of expectations. It's like if you get married thinking like everything's just going to be awesome and they're going to complete you and make everything better. And then you get married and you're like, dude, this is really hard. That moment of panic is actually an invitation to something deeper. But if you stay shallow there, you have an invitation either to just like quiet your heart and grind it out for the next 80 years or, or get divorced or, or think that you need better or whatever it is. Like there's an expectation if you have a shallow view of marriage. But that same way where you feel disillusioned in marriage, there's a massive invitation. So if you feel disillusioned by what is like a shallow understanding, if your expectations haven't matched what you thought Jesus was going to do, can you hear the expectation is on your end? He didn't just come to get you out of hell and give you everything you ever wanted. He came to rescue you, to transform you, to welcome you into his kingdom, to come and liberate you. And that's a lifetime of work of turning away from other loves that you have. It's like when you go on vacation and you get suckered into like a timeshare pitch. And as you're hearing it, you're like, this just sounds amazing. What kind of an idiot would not buy a timeshare? Yes, I want vacations for life. Yes, I want to pass this down to my grandkids. Yes, I want to have these luxurious experiences forever and ever and always. Who wouldn't sign up for that? You go like two, three, three more rooms, and now you sit down with Larry kind of in the smoky back corner. And in that space, you realize, oh my gosh, I have to sign away like a child. I have to give up my other house. This is going to cost me a ton of money. In that space, the expectations of who wouldn't want vacations for forever? You go, well, I want vacations for forever. And then you realize, oh wait, there's actually a cost to that. Not to call the gospel like a timeshare, but I think some of you have imagined it like that. And you're as frustrated with God as you are for that person in Branson who sold you on this thing, and you feel like God ripped you off. And not to like manipulate your laughter, but can you just stop for a second and go, it actually just doesn't feel very funny when I feel like God didn't live up to his end of the bargain. And I was a teenager, I was a child, and I trusted Jesus, and everything is wicked hard. Everything is just overwhelming. Jesus is pushing to the kingdom understanding of our hearts, exposing there's a temptation to shallow expectations. He came to be king of everything, not just the surface things, everything. And then he goes on to this other kind of soil. We'll see two more things there in this soil that's uh, rooted in like uh, thorns and thistles and it chokes out. He says in Verse 22, as for the one that was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the, tear, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. So it actually takes root. It begins to germinate and grow. The roots go down deep, but there's things around it that wrap around it, and he calls one of them the cares of the world, still longing for what the world promises would make you happy, make you healthy, make you hopeful, would actually complete you. Uh, thinking about the world in terms only of the physical, where you can't imagine a spiritual understanding of things like wars and famines and pain. When you look at the news around you and you just reduce it down to man's choices, we're not realizing there's an evil one that's orchestrating a ton. The cares of the world can make you say, God, where are you? Like the pain of the world can choke out your faith, Jesus says. When you look around you and just go, man, I don't see how a good God could allow this world. He's speaking to that space, right? It's our experiences. If the shallow soil is our expectations, then this is about our experiences and looking around us and going like, I just can't make sense of a God like this. 
I can't make sense of a God who will allow these kinds of things in this world. And that wraps around the seed of the gospel that's rooted in your heart, and it begins to choke it out. And what you see in the scriptures is not that God is callous to those things. He's not um, hard-hearted to those things. It's not that he doesn't care about those things. But he often is using those things to both expose darkness and advance his kingdom. And so we have this amazingly beautiful, loving, powerful God that some describe as a little bit wild. He does things that we don't expect him to do. He's told us in his word, but not knowing his word actually makes us kind of susceptible to believing he promised something different than what he promised. And the cares of the world begin to choke things out. The pain of the world. And then he says there's also the deceitfulness of riches. Maybe we could use the word the pleasures of the world there. Both the pain of the world and the pleasures of the world begin to choke out the word. When you think I can have everything that everybody around me longs for and wants without questioning where those longings and wants come from. To demand that God gives you the things that you desire when it comes to what he calls the deceitfulness of riches. What a helpful description there. It's not just like the riches and you can't have them. It's deceitful. They promise you something they could never actually give you. Every idol promises you something it can never actually give you. Maybe for you it's not material wealth, but it's the wealth of relationships. It's the wealth of experiences. It's the wealth of power, the wealth of comfort, the wealth of control. The deceitfulness of that actually is you give yourself over. I must have power and approval and comfort and control and possessions I must have what my neighbors have. I must live into the lies of my suburban culture. In those spaces, it begins to choke out the word. It takes up the nutrients. It takes up the space in your heart. It takes up your imagination. It takes up your affections. And as those things wrap around those seeds, it begins to choke out the word. Jesus is cautioning against expectations in shallow soil and our experiences in this crowded world that we live in. And he says, oh, I want something different for you. I want your heart actually to be open. I want your heart to actually bear much fruit. And so he exposes these things so he can invite us to actually receive him in genuine deep ways. And so he has this encouragement to us, right? He's an example for us. He exposes things in us. And he's an encouragement to us that this gospel actually is meant to find good soil in our hearts, verse 23. And the one who hears the word and understands it, doesn't resist it, doesn't push it away, isn't hard towards it, it takes it in he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, and another 30. It's not that it's this bare minimum. It's actually an abundant kingdom. The king is an abundant king. So we're not talking about just scraps from his table. We're talking about something that's fruitful and beautiful, even if it's different than what you expected or anticipated. And he's inviting us. He's encouraging us to trust him into this life that actually rooted in understanding of the gospel is given to fruitfulness in his kingdom. There's a promise in that of God having his way and advancing his kingdom, right? We'll see illustrations here of like leaven and yeast and mustard seeds, things that start out small. When Jesus' own ministry is kind of laid over this parable, you see people's response to him. It's exactly what he's doing. He wants to tie this to what's been happening in chapters 11 and 12. And you see these different responses to Jesus kind of played out in, in the pages of Matthew. And what you see is there are some, though very, very small, the seed takes root. These 12 with one betrayer becoming 11 
that actually begin to change the world. And there's a handful of women that are some named and some unnamed that are following him. There's a handful of, of Gentiles that, that see and understand that he actually is the Messiah. And from this little band of people, this little bitty seed, things begin to bear 160 and 30-fold. There's an encouragement of the sure nature of the kingdom of God. For those who are sowing and sowing and sowing, and you're just exhausted, Galatians 6 is a good word for you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In good time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. Jesus is encouraging his followers. Hey, I know sometimes that seed lies dormant in ways. You don't even know if it's doing anything. And you planted it, and you watered, and you're cultivating, and you're waiting, and nothing is sprouting up. Can you have the encouragement of the surety of the kingdom of God advancing in the hearts of people that actually receive the good news of the gospel? So I told you I called some farmers in our church, and it was a blast, man. I love both these men. And their perspective was actually super helpful. And one of them told me this story of his own field. And there had been corn and beans growing for a long time. They were leasing it out to someone. And they decided they wanted to kind of switch it around a little bit. And they wanted to grow prairie grass and wildflowers. So they took a little time. And they put the seed mixed together. And they plowed up the corn and the beans. I'm going to get over my skis here pretty fast. But my understanding is they plowed that over. And then they laid out these seeds. And they began to watch this grass and these flowers begin to grow. And it took a long time, and it didn't happen just all overnight. There were little patches that had to keep working it. But these flowers and the grass grew up together. And then he said over time, the prairie grass just began to choke out the flowers. Um, and so what they really wanted was these wild flowers across their back field where they could walk and just enjoy God's nature, right? Because we see God in those spaces. We're learning about God as we experience his world. And so he said what we did was we broke up the seed bed, we plowed it again, which uprooted and disturbed, disrupted the, seed, the grasses. And then the wildflowers came back, he said, with a vengeance. And he said, you know what's amazing? When we first planted it, lots of things grew up. There's stuff, and we call it, and I don't know this, but he called it the seed bed. There's stuff that lies dormant for like a long, long time. Seeds can lay in the seed bed, this is the word of a professional, for years until it's disrupted until it's plowed, until something happens where it's unpacked out of that soil. And that disruption actually then causes new things to grow. And as he was saying that, I was like, oh man, what a good, sweet word for us. That there are seeds in the soil, even shallow soil. There are seeds in the soil, even soil that has been choked out. That with disruption, the Spirit of God wants to bring new life to. And this disruption actually caused the grasses to die down so that the flowers could could emerge the disruptions of your life what if instead of God ripping you off what if instead of not meeting your expectations or or having experiences that don't match what you thought he should do what if that disruption is actually meant to unlock the seeds of the gospel that have been sown maybe it was shallow soil maybe it's never actually sprouted maybe it's lying dormant for a super long time and that disruption the Holy Spirit intends to release into the world, into your life, into those around you. There was something like so encouraging about that as a parent, as a pastor, as a person who's trying to walk with Jesus to figure out what's going on inside my life and why am I not as fruitful as I want to be in some places to hear that God in his mercy allows the seeds of the gospel sometimes just to lay there. And then he uses the very things that we'd be tempted to turn away from him with. He uses those things to call us back to himself to experience the good news of the gospel. I just thought that was such an encouraging word. 
There's so many things about this parable you could apply in lots of spaces in your life. But would you hear the example of Jesus to be extravagant in his mercy? And maybe you need to receive that for yourself. You feel like, man, my heart is way too hard. You don't know how shallow things are. I've choked everything. I've tried and tried and tried. I'm done. Can you hear the mercy of God as this extravagant farmer who just keeps sowing seed? Would you receive him today? And maybe there's spaces where as you've labored in your relationships with your children, with your friendships, with your spouse, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your siblings, and you've said and said and you've tried and tried and you model and you model and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, can you be encouraged that those gospel seeds, they don't just go away? God says they don't return void. They might lie dormant for a number of years, but that's very different than returning void. And so there's an encouragement of like the surety of his kingdom. Even in your own heart where you're frustrated with yourself, if you can tend to the soil. Because the big question of this passage is, can you change the soil of your heart? Can you move it from shallow to something fertile? Can you change it from something that's weedy and choking things out to something that actually is fruitful? That is a perennial question of this parable. And Jesus doesn't answer that, of course, but in a way that is actually provocative, that wants to draw us to him to say, oh, I want my heart to be soft. I want my heart to be fertile. I want my heart to actually be fruitful. And I think that plowing illustration of the disruption of the field is a great metaphor for repentance that that would deepen shallow soil. It would break up things that have been choked out. I think repentance in your life would be a great answer to the question of, can my heart change? You need the mercy of God but he also calls you to action and agency. Would you respond to what he says when you have this seed come and hit your heart? Would you let repentance be a way that you actually respond to it? Let, let the repentance of Jesus, uh, repentance of Jesus provides for you, open up the things inside your heart so that you might move in your soul to belief, to trust, and see kind of the sure spreading of the gospel even in your own heart. We want to take another metaphor today with communion. And I would love this morning in particular ways for you to know that these seeds were planted not just by a farmer, but by a God who came into the world, took on flesh, died in your place, let his body be broken, let his blood be shed so that you could actually hear the good news and be changed and transformed. He wasn't just flipping about it. He intentionally gave up himself so that you could believe and you could repent from that place of understanding. That's the good news of the gospel. So with all these things swirling in your heart, I want to ask you to pray with me, and then we'll take communion. Jesus, would you come now in this space? Would you help? Would you soften hearts? Would you grant repentance? Would you deepen? Would you detangle? Would you unharden? Would you plant roots? Would you encourage? Would you help us? Would you move towards us? We love you. We need you. Help. With that prayer still kind of in your mind, I want to invite all Christians to come and take communion. The way we do it here is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There's also gluten free over to my right, and there's some individual cups. If you're not ready to trust Christ, just stay in your seat and pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to move in your heart. When you're ready, come and take communion, and then we'll sing.